On November 7, 1972, Richard Milhouse Nixon was re-elected as the 37th President of the United States. Although he has never been considered one of America's most charismatic presidents, he won one of the greatest landslides in American history. He defeated Democrat George McGovern in 49 out of 50 states and had a wider margin of victory in the popular vote percentage than anything enjoyed by Theodore Roosevelt, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, and Barack Obama. Nixon had reached the pinnacle of his career, and yet this record-breaking campaign had also planted the seeds of a spectacular downfall. That June, a group of operatives were arrested after a burglary into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Hotel. In time, it was revealed that these operatives were connected to Nixon's re-election campaign, and that Nixon had personally conspired to cover up the entire affair. The Watergate scandal would go on to consume Nixon's second term. In the end, Nixon would resign in disgrace on August 9, 1974. Despite his numerous accomplishments, fairly or unfairly, the scandal would define Nixon's place in American history. Richard Nixon and Watergate continue to fascinate the American people. In today's episode, we are pleased to have Michael Dobbs, author of the new book, King Richard, Nixon, and Watergate, an American Tragedy, to discuss this fascinating event in presidential history. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Our guest today is author Michael Dobbs. He is the author of the new book, King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, An American Tragedy. And he is a a historian. He's written the famous Cold War trilogy, which I highly recommend. In fact, uh, actually, one of the first books I ever read in college was uh, Down with Big Brother, The Fall of the Soviet Empire. Uh, which it, it covers one of the most fascinating periods of our lifetimes, the fall of the Soviet Union. He's also written the book One Minute to Midnight, Kennedy, Khrushchev, and Castro on the Brink of Nuclear War. 
and also the book Six Months in 1945, From World War to Cold War. And right now we're in a Cold War series, and so you're kind of the perfect author to have here. Uh, I, I've, I'm very excited to have you on just because I read your book so many years ago and I enjoyed it. And here you are with a new book on President Nixon and Watergate. So thank you for being on this show. Well, thanks so much, uh, Richard. Uh, Down with Big Brother was my first book, so I'm pleased to find somebody who read it and uh, enjoyed it. Yeah, it was assigned reading in a comparative history class when I was at UC San Diego. And so uh, it was one of those first books that I read and uh, it was, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. So I feel like this is full circle right here. Yeah, well, it sort of captures uh, what I've tried to do in my books, which is to you know, when I was a reporter, I focused on the first rough draft of history. And then I was in Moscow during that period of the collapse of communism. When I came back to the US, I wanted to, you know, write something more in depth, a second rough draft of history or the second draft. And uh, I was able to find out a lot of things that I didn't know at the time as a reporter. And it's a little bit like that with this Nixon book that, you know, those of us who grew up during that period uh, had one experience, but now because of all the material uh, that has become available, including uh, the president's uh, tapes, um, we can get a quite different view of Nixon, a much more intimate view. We can get inside the room, which it was impossible for reporters to do at the time, of course, at least directly. Right. So having done this Cold War series and you've become basically one of the the big Cold War historians, what led you, since uh, with all the literature out there on Watergate, what led you to this story in particular? Well, I'm interested in turning points in history and all my Cold War books look at specific turning points. I mean, the collapse of communism, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was perhaps the ultimate turning point in history because the world could have been destroyed there, obviously. And six months in 1945, which looked at the genesis of the Cold War and how uh, World War II allies turned into Cold War enemies. So, you know, Watergate and the fall of Richard Nixon, the forced resignation of Richard Nixon, is another big turning point in modern American history that I wanted to examine. But I was also attracted by, you know, the incredible archival material that is now available. I don't think that it's ever going to become possible, be possible again, to get such an intimate, close-up look at an American president, particularly an American president facing a very grave crisis, an existential crisis in Nixon's case, uh, than we have uh, with Nixon uh, in the period that I'm looking at him. And this is because of his tapes and a whole lot of other material, including audio diaries, tapes made by other people, various investigations, memoirs. I mean, we're never going to get this with another American president. So that allows one to write the book in the way a novelist might or a, or a playwright might, um, which mm-hmm. was you know, very exciting for me. Yeah, so there's this image that people have of Nixon as this lonely, socially awkward person. Uh, what did you find out about him uh, that may have differed or reinforced what that image is? And, and how did someone like him 
rise to the highest level of American politics. Right. Well, Nixon was a very contradictory sort of person. I mean, he was a loner and a rather awkward person. Uh, he was born to poor, struggling Quaker parents out in California. And um, his, as he wrote himself, actually, in his own memoir, his parents were the two most opposite people you can imagine. His father was irascible, angry, punished the boys uh, harshly. His mother was a very pious Quaker, and she subjected them to the silent treatment. So within Nixon's uh, own personality, you can see the personality of both his parents. I mean, he, his anger and his resentments certainly reflect his father's personality, but his introvert nature um, and his ambition uh, reflects his mother's personality and his mother's expectations for him, I think. What about his background, born to a poor Quaker family from California? What about that stood out to you? Well, he, you know, was a self-made man and um, he had everything that he achieved in life uh, basically was the result of his own hard work and strivings. And, um, you know, he also writes about this. He talks about the some of the resentments he felt growing up and this being a, you know, a focus for his uh, energy. Um, even at college, you know, he uh, there was an elite de- uh, social, uh, social group in, uh, at Whittier College and he founded a group of jocks uh, based on the football team of which he was a member that was, um, you know, trying to uh, – an alternative to this, um, you know, rather stuck-up uh, college fraternity. Um, so, you know, he always identified right from early years with the have-nots uh, in America, and um, which he later called the silent majority. So I see – you know, a direct link from uh, his early experiences growing up to his uh, behavior as a politician. And if you want to drink, draw the uh, connection further on, I can see that link to the kind of people who support uh, Donald Trump. So you're saying that it, it was personal with Nixon uh, all the way from the start. He identified with that silent majority even before his political career, it sounds right. like. I think it began as personal. Of course, then it became political because he saw it as a way of making his uh, political career. And, um, you know, he, from very, his first political campaign was uh, an anti, he he, uh, flung anti communist epithets at his uh, Democratic opponent. So he, you know, was very savvy in using that and exploiting those political ideological divisions. We were in the middle of the Cold War at that period um, to make a successful political career. So Nixon wins re-election 1972, one of the greatest landslides in American history, 49 out of 50 states. Your book focuses on the first 100 days after his second inauguration. So what's so pivotal about that time? Well, I think that I chose that period because, you know, although the subtitle of the book is Nixon and Watergate, the real story is the unraveling 
of the American presidency or of one American president and the way in which, you know, in a very short space of time, a politician can go from being top of the world, re-elected by one of the largest, if not the largest, popular vote margin in American history to struggling for his political life. And that happened to Nixon in those first 100 days after his second inaugural. So I begin with the night of his second inaugural, actually, or the night preceding his second inaugural. And I go all the way through to uh, the end of April 1973, when he's forced to part company with his two closest aides, John Ehrlichman and Bob Haldeman, um, which is a something as painful to him as the loss of his two brothers from tuberculosis while he was still a young man. I mean, it was a personal crisis for Nixon. And this is really a, you know, a psychodrama, a, a personal and political psychodrama that Nixon went through. But I actually then take the story up until July 1973, which follows those early congressional hearings and, most important, the revelation of his secret taping system and his decision not to destroy the tapes. He could have destroyed the tapes, I think, when he took the decision not to destroy the tapes, although he didn't realizing realize it, he was sealing his fate as president. Because when those tapes became public, then uh, it was discovered that he had himself ordered the cover-up of Watergate, and he was forced to resign as president. But that's a different phase. That's a sort of political, constitutional, legal phase of the Watergate crisis. And I was interested in the personal psychodrama of the Watergate crisis and the unraveling of the Nixon presidency. In fact, the unmaking of the president, which is what I was interested in. There have been, you know, a series of books by Teddy White called The Making of the President. And I was interested in the unmaking of the president. So could you take us into that decision to not get rid of the tapes, to not dispose of them? What was How did that psychodrama play out in Nixon's mind over that decision? Right. Well, this is in July of 1973. Uh, Nixon thinks that he can completely control the tapes um, and that they are his personal property and he can do whatever he wants with them. And he want, his intention was that he would use them for his uh, memoirs and perhaps leak them selectively to bolster his own uh, case. Um, so that is his mindset. Um, his aide, who actually was responsible for installing the ta- taping system in the first place, a man called Alexander Butterfield, reveals the existence of the tapes in a bombshell testimony to Congress. And then Nixon has to decide what to do. And at that moment, he is uh, actually in the naval hospital here in Bethesda, where I live, uh, suffering from a very severe bout of pneumonia. He's drugged up. He's not thinking very clearly. And some of his aides are telling him to destroy the tapes. Other ones are telling him to keep the tapes. And uh, Nixon makes the fatal decision to keep the tapes because, as he says, he believes that the tapes can be his ally in this ongoing political struggle with uh, his aides about who is telling the truth, particularly 
uh, John Dean, who has emerged as his number one accuser. Hmm. Why did he think that? Why did he think that he would be vindicated through them? Well, he'd listened to some of the tapes, and uh, of course, it's very difficult to listen to the tapes, so he might have got a kind of skewed idea of what was on the tapes. But he knew there were bad things on the tapes, but he also felt felt there was some material, other material on the tapes that could be useful to him. Um, I mean, he made a terrible mistake there, but um, I think the basic calculation was he felt that he could always control the tapes and um, he could leak the bits on the tapes that, you know, helped to prove his case. Um, He didn't envisage at that time that the Supreme Court would order him to release, you know, the so-called smoking gun tapes, which proved that he had been lying over Watergate, particularly lying about the cover-up. I see. So he felt that he could release the things that were advantageous to him. uh, But in doing so, he didn't realize that the raw material would be out there showing him, showing basically what happened. Right. He assumed that he, uh, the tapes were under his personal control. I mean, actually, previous presidents had taped themselves. So this had never been tested. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court eventually ruled nine to zero that Nixon had to release certain specific tapes, which would settle the question of who was telling the the truth, him or John Dean. But it was not actually till many years later, fairly recently, that uh, almost the entire 3,700 hours of tapes that Nixon kept were released to the general public. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. So you detail President Nixon and his staff, his reliance on uh, the kind of the inner circle, especially his complicated relationship with Henry Kissinger. How did all that play out during Watergate? Right. I mean, in a way, an Amer- the American presidency is like a medieval court. And when I was uh, uh, many years ago, I read a book by Richard Kopuschinski called The Emperor. 
and it's about the uh, court of Haile Selassie, uh, the emperor of Ethiopia, and all the people in his court. And in a way, you know, it's similar to that, um, uh, that you see there are people there who are flattering the emperor or the king or the president, whatever you want to call him, in the case of Nixon. Uh, there are people who are trying to restrain him, people who are trying to manipulate him. Um, so this book that I've written, King Richard, is as much as anything a portrait of a court of the ruler and his courtiers, who of course include Henry Kissinger, Chuck Colson, John Dean, um, Spiro Agnew, the vice president, um, you know, the whole gang of them. And they're all different people and they interact with Nixon in different ways. How would you characterize his relationship with Henry Kissinger? And what what was the impact of that relationship on Watergate? Well, it's interesting because uh, Kissinger was Nixon's national security advisor. And they, you know, were a team, but they were also rivals because Nixon suspected, um, you know, largely correctly, of Kissinger playing a double game. Uh, of leaking to the press, leaking to Nixon's enemies, and with the goal of making Kissinger himself, you know, look more, look smarter, um, and being the architect of some of these, uh, some of the big foreign policy initiatives, including the opening to China. Uh, and Nixon didn't want Kissinger to get all the credit. And when journalists gave him the cre credit for some of these foreign policy initiatives, Nixon was furious. So that was actually one of Nixon's main motivations in installing this tape recording system, that he would be able to show when he came to write his memoirs that uh, he had been the driver of all these foreign policy initiatives, not Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. So Kissinger, for his part, was a very adept uh, flatterer and sycophant. So he would play on Nixon's vanity and tell Nixon that he was the greatest president ever and that he, uh, this Watergate thing uh, would all be forgotten in history and Nixon would go down in history as, you know, a great foreign policy president. And Nixon liked that. He liked to be flattered. But at the same time, he was, you know, pretty much aware of the game that Nick, uh, Kissinger was playing. And uh, there's some what I find hilarious moments on the tapes when Nixon is running down Kissinger and even one moment when they're talking about going off to Camp David for the weekend and Nixon says, we'll take Kissinger along with us. And then a couple of minutes later says, no, no, Henry's too much of a pain in the ass. We won't take him. <laughs> so <laughs> Kissinger was disinvited. But, you know, that reflects this rather you know, strange relationship between the two of them. That's probably one of the milder things that uh, that's documented as far as Nixon talking about somebody. Yeah, he was um, certainly an equal opportunity um, uh, insulter of people. Um, and um, he, you know, uses a lot of swear words and... Um, he typically sort of refers to the media, for example, as sons of bitches, bitches, bastards. Son of a bitch is, you know, just a typical right. expression for Nixon. Right. Now, you alluded to Vice President Spiro Agnew. 
people remember him as the first vice president to resign. What was their relationship like? And there was talk of Agnew be- becoming president potentially yeah. with the Watergate scandal. So how did that play out for Nixon? Well, Nixon often talked about Agnew as his best insurance policy against assassination and uh, later against resignation because he calculated that once people figured out that if they got rid of Nixon, they would get Agnew, um, that would um, restrain them. And so, you know, they sometimes... uh, He sometimes talks about his resignation and then his own resignation... And then he says to one of his aides, you want Agnew? And the aide says, no, of course we don't want Agnew. And Mm -hmm. so that uh, uh, is always a reason for Nixon himself to stay on. Now, Agnew himself was facing his own troubles during this period. He was uh, being investigated for taking bribes as the governor of Maryland previously. So he is also on the ropes. And uh, Agnew tries to get Um, actually not Nixon directly, but he tries to get Nixon's chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, to interfere with that investigation, that criminal investigation. And Haldeman refuses to have anything to do with it, um, you know, refuses to intervene. And that angers Agnew because Agnew realizes he's in deep trouble And he then begins to lose sympathy for Nixon, you know, in Nixon's troubles and talks about, you know, Nixon will find it difficult to rescue himself. So there are two politicians, the president and the vice president, facing huge personal crises and they don't show so much sympathy for each other. Mm -hmm. So you talk a little bit about Nixon's drinking and use of medication. What's the story there? Right. Um, You know, a lot has been written about Nixon drinking, and, uh, you know, I want to put it into perspective. Uh, Certainly late at night, uh, Nixon typically liked to unwind, and he would do so with a, you know, few glasses of wine or whiskey. that didn't happen every night, but it happened, you know, quite frequently. He had trouble getting to sleep, so he used to take, um, you know, sleeping pills and other medications, and they would interact with whatever alcohol he was taking. Um, and it didn't take a f- many drinks to get Nixon slurring his words and sounding sort of pretty drunk. And there are occasions on the tapes uh, when you, he clearly is drunk. Um, but, it, you know, I wouldn't say it's a nightly occurrence and this the president was out of control. Um, I mean, it's on a spectrum. I mean, some some days he was, you know, he would abstain completely if he had a big, big event coming up. And some nights he would just take one or two drinks. And then occasionally, you know, when he, at critical moments, he certainly drinks too much. So you get you know, the whole range of um, of uh, him being out of control. And when he was, you know, out of control, the people like Kissinger and Haldeman would know, you know, just to ignore his orders, basically, or postpone implementation of the orders. So I don't think, you know, he was never on the point of pressing a nuclear button. Mm-hmm. So... 
Nixon famously had a, a not a great relationship with the media. And this was not too long after the Kennedy years, after mm-hmm. President Franklin Roosevelt, who uh, uh, the media, they had a very good relationship and there were things that they actually hid from the American people about those presidents. So how did those relationships compare and how did it change so quickly? Yeah, well, as you said, both uh, FDR and John Kennedy are examples of presidents who, on the whole, had very good relationships with the media and were able to charm and manipulate the media. And Nixon certainly resented that because, you know, he wasn't a charismatic sort of person. He was rather awkward. He wanted to control everything. Um, and he had had a very rocky relationship with the media. And, uh, you know, he takes it out on them. He thinks that he identifies the media with his political enemies and uh, is constantly thinking up reasons to uh, screw the bastards in the media, as he puts it. Um, Particularly once Watergate gets going, a very antagonistic relationship with the Washington Post, where I used to work, by the way. Um, And he's scheming with Chuck Colson. Uh, Actually, this is part of the first scene of the book, he's scheming to drive down the share price of the Washington Post, which has just gone public. You know, he wants to punish the Washington Post for its Watergate coverage. So this goes up and down and is fairly sort of, you know, pretty much background noise uh, throughout his presidency and particularly the period that I'm describing. Hmm. So you mentioned the Washington Post. Deep Throat during this time was leaking information to them. Deep Throat becoming uh, basically part of the American political lexicon. So what did you learn about Deep Throat? Mark Felt, the FBI number two, and his motivation for leaking information to the Post. Right. The phrase Deep Throat actually came from a pornographic movie that was popular at the time, starring Linda Lovelace. So when uh, Bob Woodward uh, was investigating Watergate, he had a secret source, uh, the identity of whom he refused to disclose, even though, um, even to his own editors. So they christened him Deep Throat, you know, the man who could never be named. And many years later, it turned out that Deep Throat was the deputy director of the FBI, a man called Mark Felt, who uh, you know, had his own reasons for leaking to journalists. Bob Woodward wasn't the only journalist that uh, Mark Felt was talking to. Um, and um, so he used to you know, have clandestine meetings with Woodward throughout the uh, – you know, throughout the Watergate period, uh, they would meet in a parking garage in Arlington, Virginia, uh, in the middle of the night at two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning. So Mark Felt was really leading a double life. Um, During the day, he was this ultra-efficient FBI official in charge pretty much of the Watergate investigation. And by night, he was a whistleblower, you know, betraying the very president that he was serving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a remarkable circumstance. Uh, now, you have probably listened to 
hundreds, if not thousands of hours of tape. You probably know the Nixon tapes as well as anybody alive. What surprised or intrigued you, uh, intrigued you most about them? Well, I think it's the insight they give to the day-to-day life of a president. And I mean, most of the big revelations from the tapes have already, you know, trickled out uh, in newspaper reporting or, you know, books over the years. So it's not as, I mean, you can find, you know, nuggets of new detail and every page of my book actually uh, contains a new detail or, you know, something that would be fresh to even to experts on this period. But um, the main thing is, you know, just the insight it ge- the tapes give to, um, you know, how a president lives his day, um, what's it like being president, to understand this from the inside rather from the outside, as journalists and even historians are usually compelled to do. So we can follow Nixon around the White House day by day, minute by minute, as he goes from uh, his secret hideaway in the executive office building um, across the street to the Oval Office and then goes up to the his favorite room in the White House, which, that, which was actually the Lincoln sitting room on the second floor of the uh, residence. Um, we can follow him around and we can listen to him you know, getting angry with his aides, uh, having loving conversations with his daughters. We can appreciate the full complexity of the man and all the contradictions. We can, you know, it's like being a fly on the wall, actually, or perhaps a better expression would be a bug in his desk, because that's where the bugs were actually planted. And, you know, that is unique because we see the president's as he really is, rather than as somebody, um, uh, 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 rather than, you know, through the eyes of somebody else. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. What do people get right and what do people get wrong about Nixon and Watergate? Well, I think, you know, we've tended to, particularly those of us who grew up during that period, uh, we tended to have a very black and white view of uh, Nixon. And, uh, you know, you see people either as a hero or as a villain. And in most cases, 
you know, they're somewhere in between. They're shades of grey and shades of grey rather than black and white. Um, so, you know, that's what interested me with this. I wanted to describe someone in all his uh, complexity. Um, and that meant, to a certain extent, stepping inside his shoes. And it's not that, um, you know, this made me more sympathetic to Nixon, but it did at least uh, made me me more empathetic in the sense that I had to, was forced as a biographer uh, to understand events from Nixon's point of view and understand all these hatreds and resentments that he had and also, you know, feel the suffering that he underwent uh, during this personal and political crisis. I mean, he uh, suffered in a way, and one can see him suffering, in a way that's very difficult to imagine Donald Trump suffering over firing someone. I mean, Nixon had the same chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, for four years. Donald Trump went through four chiefs of staff in four years. And when Nixon had to uh, sacrifice Haldeman in order to survive himself, and he has this very tearful conversation with Haldeman, and he starts calling him Haldeman, who he's barely, you know, has kept at a distance up until then, even though they're close collaborators. He starts calling him my brother. Uh, and he says, I love you. And then there's a pause. And he says, like my brother. And I think that's a reference to one of Nixon's brothers who died of tuberculosis uh, when Nixon was a young man. And this act of getting rid of Haldeman, um, who's been with him all these years, is as painful to Nixon as losing uh, his brothers from tuberculosis while he was a young man. So you can, you know, in the same way that if you, uh, uh, if you go to a Shakespeare play, you can see the hero, you know, suffering immensely on stage you can also appreciate nixon's suffering um you know in this very uh, in this period that's traumatic for the country but is also traumatic for him personally right now how did nixon's relationship with his family play out in all of this and i've heard that despite nixon's um paranoias and and vindictiveness he was very much a family man what did you learn about that yeah, I definitely think he was a family man, and the family was close to him. Uh, I mean, his wife, Pat, Pat Nixon, um, was often portrayed in the press as Plastic Pat. Um, I think that's a little unfair characterization. Um, the family stood by Nixon during this period, and particularly his younger daughter, Julie, um, who there are tapes of conversations between Nixon and Julie at the height of Watergate. And, uh, you know, Nixon is yelling at Haldeman or someone else. And then suddenly Julie gets on the phone trying to cheer her father up and trying to pass on, you know, uh, what she calls nuggets of cheery news. And Nixon's voice changes automatically from being irascible to being loving and caring because he's talking to Julie. So, you know, that is another side of Nixon, um, the relationship with his family, which 
uh, is often, you know, not captured in books about Watergate or biographies of Nixon. Mm -hmm. So in what ways are we still living in the shadow of, of Watergate? Well, I think you can draw a direct line from Watergate to the various, um, you know, scandals of the Nixon presidency. I think this, you know, obviously Vietnam was a very divisive time in American history, and it really divided the country into, uh, you know, the anti-war movement and uh, the people who now describe themselves, or Sarah Palin described themselves as real Americans, real America. And, um, you know, that dates back, that idea of real America as a, you know, political construct dates back to the Nixon era. So I see this as a, uh, you know, there's a direct link there. I mean, many of the abuses that uh, took place in the Watergate era were repeated during the Trump period. Um, the interference with the Justice Department, for example, is, is, is one example. And Nixon was appealing to the same kind of portion of the electorate that Trump later appealed to. Um, so they're definitely, uh, there's definitely a connection there. I think, however, you know, Trump and Nixon are two very different people. Nixon had a much greater sense of American history and was a, you know, much more serious thinker than Trump, particularly on foreign policy. So in some ways, you know, uh, Karl Marx wrote once that history repeats itself the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. And um, I think, you know, that might be uh, applicable to Nixon and Trump in some ways. So you have written the trilogy on the Cold War, uh, the, the big turning points, and then now you've written on the turning point of Watergate and the role that had in American history. Is there any future projects that you're eyeing, future turning points that might end up being a, a new book or a trilogy? Well, it's hard to sort of get as close up to a major decision maker as we can get to Nixon. I don't, you know, it's hard to repeat that. Um, so uh, certainly I'm more interested in historical subjects than, uh, you know, topical ones, because I think it takes 40 or 50 years for all the materials to come out and to write, you know, what I've called the second draft of history. So I'm, um, you know, not interested in writing another book about Donald Trump. <laughs> there are lots of books about being written about Donald Trump. And uh, they're all going to depend on secondhand accounts rather than on firsthand accounts, because no other president, including Donald Trump, is going to tape himself the way Nixon did. Um, so that rules out, you know, topical uh, 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 current day topics as a subject for a book. Um, I can see myself writing a book about, you know, some other historical book, perhaps about the entire Cold War. Um, rather than just an episode in the Cold War. Hmm. Great. Well, Michael Dobbs, the book is called King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, An American Tragedy. It came out 
in May of this year. So it's still relatively hot off the presses. But uh, Mr. Dobbs, thank you so much for being on our show and sharing your insights about this very important moment in American history. Well, thank you so much. I uh, enjoyed your show and uh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks. We want to thank three of our patrons, Bert and Lilia Chu of California, Alex Eubanks of Maryland, and David Bastian of Virginia for sponsoring this episode. You too can support us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident. Our supporters on Patreon get to be part of our exclusive community and help us put out the best quality product possible. Through our patrons, we're able to access the best scholarly resources and improve our production quality. Again, just go to patreon.com slash thisamericanpresident to support us. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We are a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.